makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha, I can't do Chasha. Oh, it's not like I'm a cocky little I can't be. Oh, who do I? Na who bahu you can't be. Dakos can't go on be killing a you. Ma cocky little. I can't think of that on each other. I can't hook it till the money picked. Ma cocky little hook it Bet you watch Dello Chante Washtena, Page Yuzapiello, Le Unkipiki, Hewashtello. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and it's a good day for all of us to be here. And this is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength on the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse. And this is an all native hosted. All Native Produce First Voices Radio now in its 29th year of broadcasting. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive. Your hometown that you used to swim in as a kid, the exit of your area interstate, chances are that they are all named after or inspired by the indigenous people who once lived there. In the rarest cases, like in the Dakotas, some of the first inhabitants still hold ground on these ancestral lands. If you're new to this knowledge, it's not your fault. In 2015, social scientists studying history standards in American public schools found that nearly all of them, 80%, failed to teach students about indigenous peoples past the year 1900. And it means we're frozen in the past and made invisible in the present. But we are still here. Our guest for the hour is Jenny Monet, a Laguna Pueblo, an investigative journalist, media critic, and founder of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously Decolonizing Your Newsfeed, 
and she has been reporting from Indian country from the coup d'etats on Hickoria Apache lands in the late 90s to the dramatic demonstrations at Standing Rock a few years ago where she was arrested while on assignment and later acquitted. At every step, telling our story has been a struggle to fit in the colonized press. Jenny Monet was a broadcaster for CBS News affiliates, then segued into public TV and radio, including a stint at National Native News. She lived in the Middle East to cover global affairs for Al Jazeera, where she traveled throughout the indigenous worlds. She's been working independently since 2015 as an award-winning reporter published by the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, the Center for Investigative Reporting, and PBS NewsHour, to name a few. Her critiquing of media appears frequently in a Columbia Journalism Review. and She holds an MA in International Politics from Columbia Journalism School with a concentration in Indigenous human rights policy. She's a founding member of the Indigenous Media Caucus and resides on her ancestral homelands. First Voices caught up with Jenny Monet on assignment above the Arctic Circle to discuss the media bias, the neglect, dismissal, rhetoric of inclusion by broadcast media, and the treatment of indigenous peoples within media. There are disparities. We don't have unlimited financial resources. We don't have huge social media followings. We also have complex jurisdictional barriers throughout original nations in the Western Hemisphere. Original nations intending to be Native people, Native Americans, American Indians, indigenous peoples. We call ourselves original nations in the Western Hemisphere. And you can follow Jenny Monet at her website, indigenously.org. It's a great honor to welcome Jenny Monet to First Voices Radio. Jenny Monet is an investigative journalist, media critic, and founder of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously Decolonizing Your News Feed. And, you know, unlearning is the gist of it all. But now let's, let's focus on, on this uh, exclusion of Native missing, murdered Indigenous women reporting and how biased that, that media is to, to Native people. Yes, well, Tioka-san, Gwatsi, and Dawei, thank you so much for having me on your show. And it's, um, you know, it's just so it's just so wonderful to see that you're still um, making the airwaves indigenous, you know, and for all of us, really, um, you know, this issue, what we're talking about uh, with regard to missing and murdered, you know, there it affects all of us. You know, it's not just an indigenous problem. It just so happens, though, that <laughs> it is chronic uh, for women like me. Um, to be sure, I just met the threshold at 45 years old this year. And that pretty much, if I can make it to 46, that means statistically, I've scaled the gauntlet. I'm going to be okay, or at least I'm out of the woods for being, you know, top three um, causes of death murder, unexplained accidents, quote unquote, or being disappeared uh, without a trace. Right. And I mean, those are those are the everyday realities for somebody like me. And then as a journalist, the everyday the flip side of that coin is to be quite blunt racism. Right. There is this in, inherent um, uh, virus of racism in today's newsrooms. I've been doing this profession for 20 plus years now. And, you know, after the death of George Floyd and the racial reckoning that, you know, that brought on, um, it has been um, a consistent 
stream of processing for me ever since, because I think it's when it's, it's akin to being in an abusive relationship where you don't know that you're in in an abusive relationship for a long time until you get something um, that is the turning point, a flashpoint. And George Floyd was a flashpoint for this country, um, for uh, centuries old uh, white supremacy. (laughs) And that's not divorced from what we're talking about here with what we saw play out on the national airwaves last week with how our industry so easily slips into what Gwen Ifill said in 2004, the the, uh, missing white woman syndrome. And, There's actual studies that have been done about that, about what that means. But at the end of the day, it's not really that complicated (laughs) when we take a look at, um, you know, how white this this colonial structure of media is. And um, and it's not something that my industry likes to contend with, quite honestly, or yours. We're both in this industry. So, you know, I'm sure you have stories as well. Jenny Monet, you know, I'm thinking about the science of relationship and what that means to when we apply it to media, we apply it to, you know, the nationalism that's going on and seems to have always been going on. In other words, the colonialism is to cover up any type of signs of abuse that is being, in this case, done to Native people and their exclusion. So I'm thinking about how does the mainstream journalism media I would say rationalism to of of abuse. You see, they're they're rationalizing why they have to continue this way is because to me it's all always about joining joining the party so that our our aches and pains, our complaints, our our truths aren't heard as native people within their world. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about mm-hmm. how they rationalize. Uh, what they can get away with so far. It's, it's, it's meted out in all kinds. You said George Floyd, and now it's women and people of, I don't say people of colors, okay, but then there's people of culture. It is Would that be getting close to the core? Is that maybe it's about people of culture rather than people mm-hmm. of color? Because you see that the, 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 the racism, the racist schematic is to have us into a, a class of the people. So therefore we can be dealt with that way. I see it um, on two different speeds, the old speed, (laughs) let's call it the old speed before George Floyd. The old speed was like, you should just be grateful that we're giving you coverage. Right. I actually heard that at Standing Rock. I heard a reporter uh, say, Hey, did I thought you guys wanted this covered? So you should just be glad we're here. And it was, um, you know, <laughs> I ended up knowing who his boss was. I mean, that's just it. There's this underestimation of us that we don't know these spaces, that we're not in these newsrooms, or we don't have these connections tied to um, people who are making decisions, you know, in these um, pretty powerful um, news desks, but we do. And, um, and he backed off pretty fast when he when he said that to me. But that's the old speed, right? The old speed is be grateful that you're being seen at all. And for a long time, sadly, our our native communities took on that mentality of like, even if it was bad journalism, well, at least we're being seen. Um, I'm thinking of that Diane Sawyer um, piece from like 2000, early 2000s. It was atrocious, right? I mean, the the de- very definition of poverty porn. And I remember the tug of war of outrage happening at that time. There were a lot of us, particularly journalists and those who were, you know, worried about the narrative at the time. 
you know, being really upset about it. And then there were others, a lot of elders, a lot of people who were trying to, you know, be upstanding about it saying, well, you know, at least, at least there's representation, but um, I'm really glad to see that, um, you know, particularly in this climate that we're all living in, that there's a very short fuse when it comes to um, really, um, awful things like uh, what we saw on election night being called something else by CNN um, and having absolutely zero tolerance for those kinds of things. We've come a long way. Um, So that's the old speed, right? The old speed of putting up with whatever representations we get. And the new speed, uh, what I call is this kind of like forced inclusion that's happening. Everybody's creating these quote unquote diversity inclusion desks, these race, these race um, in America desks. And that to me just turns me right off because what it tells me is that it's already siloed in a certain kind of space. It's a pre-packaged in this way that even though if it's a black community, well, it's going to go and get siloed in that category. And secondly, it sets up people like me who are Uh, poised to be um, knowledgeable in a particular field involving a particular marginalized group, which is indigenous peoples, to be this kind of knowledge base for the world. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, And that's problematic on so many levels, but in my very brief um, experience in the last 18 months since George Floyd's passing, it has brought on people who ask me opinions about things. And when they don't like my opinion, they get either fragile about it or they're offended or they, um, you know, it's this it's this weird stew of progressivism, you know, that has cancel culture involved and this kind of like weird puritanical, like, you know, outing of anybody who's not going to, you know, beat the drum of advocacy right now. And I just think that's a dangerous, dangerous uh, tune to be walking to in the field of journalism. But, you know, that's what we're in right now. It's just, and I sound like an old, an old lady, you know, when I start talking about that, but I think there's a real generational shift. You know, I've been doing this work for 20 plus years now, um, long enough to know, you know, that facts matter. And when you don't live by the facts, it's, you know, there goes your credibility right out the window, but it seems like that doesn't matter as much these days. And that's really troubling for me in an industry that I absolutely love. And it's really hard for me to be, um, to see what's happening to, um, journalism today. Jenny, when I think about the the, the wholeness, uh, the, the truth bearing that we do as non-paid independent journalists, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to how we finance our own, because if I'm tied to something that, that requires approval, in a sense, then that curtails any work that I have and, and I have to say the right things in order to get paid. And I think that's what's going on with a lot of corporate invested native journalists out there anybody would be you know waiting to not bite the hand that feeds them so to speak and i think maybe that's why why we are we invest our stories because actually we're living our stories as native people but to be not native would mean is that we yes we have to cancel our culture 
because we're giving in to the neoliberal liberalist ideas, the progressive ideas, in order to give the illusion that we are going along and, and being ev- evolutionized in the same way. But how far, and that, that may be a lot of questions there, but how far mm-hmm. is, is this colonialism gotten to our our own people that we, we fail mm. to call, call it out within our own people? What a good loaded question, Tioka said. <laughs> In fact, um, and it's a it's a timely one because I uh, I was just talking to um, some journalism students. It's that time of year, right, where classes have started, and um, I often get asked to go speak to these classrooms, and I'm very selective about who I'm talking to these days, um, and. Uh, I just spoke with some native journalism students and I did not sugarcoat it um, in terms of addressing exactly what you're talking about. Um, They asked me what I thought of Deb Holland. And of course, as a Pueblo woman, it is impossible to not have pride to see someone who looks like me, who comes from my very Pueblo, Laguna Pueblo, and to know that, um, to know all the things that she knows, right, from where we come from. It's impossible not to have that pride. On the same side of that coin, I am trained professionally to scrutinize people in power. That's what I do. And Deb Holland is not immune to that kind of scrutiny. She is in a position where she runs an $11 billion department, you know, that oversees about a fifth of the nation's lands, indigenous lands. Um, You know, she's making decisions that in large part are um, including indigenous peoples for the first time as a priority. And all of that is really exciting. But there are there are other uh, elements to the story that you know, that aren't takedown. This, it's not that the journalism is, you know, weaponizing and trying to be, um, you know, malintended in any way, but to be critical and to think critically about aspects, um, unfortunately, is becoming warfare in my profession. I mean, people are afraid to criticize because of the backlash. They're, they're afraid of being canceled and sorry, not sorry, but when did everyone get so soft in journalism? And that's exactly what's happening. It's like the butter's been left out too long and people are just not being hard journalists anymore. And I mean that as a freelancer as well. The reason why I went independent is because our stories could never get on uh, the air or in a newspaper and in a magazine, any place that I ever worked. So I saved up money to go independent. That's how That's how I reported at Standing Rock. And now that you have this this attraction to the indigenous narrative, it's exploded into in many ways onto the scene in newsrooms and in pretty much every industry across the board. But it's 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 with delicate gloves. Right. And particularly in journalism, you're seeing um, two ends of the spectrum. You're seeing what used to be really nasty news about us. Right. All of the all of the negative stories about, um, you know, the 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 horrible statistics, the death, the dying, the addictions. Right. Um, And now we've almost gone to the very other end of that spectrum where it's all just a lot of really upbeat what I call fist pumping activism news, advocacy journalism. And that's awesome. Indigenous peoples have had it so 
horrible for so long that, yeah, shouldn't they have some good news every once in a while? But that also those two ends of the spectrum don't really don't really represent the everyday, you know, and the everyday are, uh, you know, the tribal leaders that are making decisions that are, um, you know, maybe harmful to the land. You know, they're just because we're indigenous does not mean that there aren't um, energy resource tribes that are making decisions that, you know, carry, a, um, you know, major impacts for, um, you know, the, the health and well-being of the land, which I always argue is related to the health and well-being of our communities. Um, that's definitely happen, happening. Um, and so I don't think that even the industry as a whole is ready for somebody like me to say, I'm here to do journalism. And when you guys are ready to catch up again after you're, you're done with this progressive era, like, you know, call me, come to my newsletter. I mean, because I haven't stopped doing that, but it's become unpopular because people are afraid. And I think that's just a very dangerous place to be in a profession that I think is one of the most noblest professions uh, in the world. I think it is a very good profession, even so it's our lives actually we're talking about and witnessing and testifying and living those lives. And that's just my opinion that my thought is let's switch gears a little bit is to the, um, you know, you, you, we discussed the missing and murdered indigenous women. You talked about the fist pumping activist news that everybody seems to be thrilled over and it's supposedly good news, but yet it's covering up the real bad news that our lands are still being eroded but also this mm -hmm. when they they switched it from poverty porn to what i would call trauma porn you know who's having the hardest yes. time and now we're, we're paying attention to who's whose trauma is worse therapies are coming out you know but it's all being done in the western psychological modicum and when something is referred to as native ceremony then we get into the romanticized medicine man thought process and it's still not leaving any room for the human um and i think that that's right that human is disappearing in both spectrums what are your thoughts well and the first thing that comes to mind is there are a lot of grays and not just in the indigenous narrative everywhere right i mean they're just a lot of grays and i think that that's something as i mature as a journalist and you know, think deeply about the things that I'm putting out in the world. Um, you know, my whole purpose now as a journalist is I'm not creating content for content's sake. I'm creating content because it's things that you are not seeing anywhere else. They're not thought out They're It's not black and white. It's not either, either or, right? It, there are a lot of grays and What's lacking in what I see, even from major publications, most often like the New York Times or the Washington Post, is that it lacks real analysis and compassionate analysis, right? It's like, where's the care? Where's the care in what we're pushing out today? And it's not for a lack of money. I mean, yes, the journalism industry is suffering. We see layoffs all the time. But at the end of the day, if we were to unpack like who's making how much money, <laughs> you know, there could probably be some salaries that could be cut for the sake of actually doing some really compassionate, meaningful journalism. And those, unfortunately, those kinds of stories are hard to come by. Um, and 
uh, you know, I, I just think the rewards that we're giving to um, the kinds of product that's coming out is meant to sensationalize. And as you said, um, really dip into this victimizing narrative, right? It's, <laughs> as you said, there was poverty porn. Now let's victimize everybody, um, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And that drives me crazy because while we are victims, while a case like missing and murdered is uh, a narrative steeped in victimization. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of survivorship in that, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good anger, right, to get at the truth. And um, and you know the the notion of of the trauma. It's that even in and of itself has layers. There's a lot of layers. I'm a I'm a domestic violence survivor and I don't hate my my abuser. Do you know what I mean? Like that you got to really do some work to get to that point. And we're just not seeing those stories. And that's where we're if we're so into this culture of wellness and, you know, uh, mental health, then let's let's deliver that. Let's actually show up and do the work. But right now it's just a lot of hashtags and, you know, it's just like everything else. It's a trend. And I was thinking about how America, how the, the Euro Westerner accepts tragedy, trauma and what's being done about it is, of course, we are going to um, filter out through the psychological modicums that they have, modalities that they have. And one example, and I could go there, is the graves that are being, un are being uncovered in Canada and not even begun here. So how do the Canadian people themselves, the, the non-First Nations peoples, respond is that we hear silence. We hear no help. Mm -hmm. We hear nothing from the government, maybe a few few winces here and there. But it's a sign of, of numbness, which is they thought their country was uh, benevolent and gave everything you know as they could. But then when it came to the real truth that they can't change, that they're in fact graves being uncovered, children's graves, is that the whole country went silent, a numbness, which is a sign of, of PTSD. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think we, and that's what's been going on here in the United States is it's the shortest conversation as, as well as, you know, that was yesterday. Let's move on. As you said, that's the old speed. The new speed is we're stuck. We're in, we're in numb. We don't know what to do, uh, but uh, yeah. Here's some money. Here's some money. We'll give you a story. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're absolutely right. I mean, it turns out genocide has been the right word to use all along. And I think that that's having a hard time to sink in for a lot of people. And um, not for me, right? Not for a lot of us who, who um, have been using that word with, you know, being contested about it for four years, um, you know, about the um, the boarding schools up in or the residential schools up in Canada, you know, it's it's leagues ahead of what we have here in the United States, simply because Canada prides itself on how progressive it is. And yet when it when you're absolutely right, when it comes down to the brass tacks of things, uh, you know, checking off those um, those uh, 94 points on the truth and reconciliation suggestions, you know, for healing, you know, the progress is really weak. It's actually quite thin. And um, Canada has always been a gauge for uh, aspirational advances here in the United States. It's always been so 
fascinating to me to understand and grok how you could have basically the same Indian country of North America, right? I mean, we're really only divided by by a colonial divide, a colonial border. Um, And yet you have two very different Indian countries. I wrote about it recently for my newsletter about why, you know, what is it up there um, that separates it from down here? And, uh, you know, I talked to Dr. Kim Tallbear, the Sisseton Wapaton professor who's teaching up in Edmonton. And she basically boils it down to uh, natives are just more militant up there. And there's, I think, more of a space for that kind of militancy. Um, and I think that we might be seeing a little bit of that here in the in the United States. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure where the hesitancy is to be um, less militant. I'm not quite sure if it's um, the fear of our justice system, which might be harsher. Um, I haven't really studied, gone that deep into it, but I know like anytime I'm um, at a frontline uh, community, whether it's Standing Rock or Line 3, you know, a lot of natives have um, have real weaknesses of, of being locked up, um, you know, from other past offenses. Um, you know, the the consequences are great is what I'm saying. If, if they're getting stuck in the justice system and who wants that when you're fighting for injustices, it's a hard, hard um, thing to negotiate. And I don't, I don't wish that on anybody, uh, but I understand it. Um, and I'm not sure if that is something uh, a factor for why here in the United States we're so far behind when we are seeking uh, reconciliation for um, boarding schools or uh, missing and murdered. I mean, these are two major movements that we've seen, um, you know, take take real action in Canada beyond what we have in years, not just like, oh, a few years behind. We're talking like more than a decade on each of them. And so um, I'm hoping that, you know, this current investigation that we have uh, on both fronts, well, Deb Holland, you know, she's adopted Missing and Murdered and the boarding school investigation, um, both under her helming. And I hope she's not stretching herself too thin. Do you know? I mean, you know what I mean? When you're trying to do too much, you can only do so, so much in each area. But, you know, she's she's carrying a lot of weight uh, uh, for Indian country. And I don't envy her at all. Jenny Monet, a Laguna Pueblo, an investigative journalist, media critic and founder of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously Decolonizing Your Newsfeed. And she's appearing on First Voices Radio here with myself, Teokas and Ghost Horse. And back to Jenny Monet. Jenny, thank you so much. Let's go to this little systemic racism. I think we've been talking it along the lines and filling in the, sp- the spaces in between. Is When we talk about the missing, murdered Indigenous women stories, thousands and thousands of them, it's also a story that's covered by people of color, so to speak. One was Gwen Ifill, Missing White Woman Syndrome, which talks about the overriding privilege of white people, and this, as we see in Gabby Petito, and we have none of this privilege that 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 you, you talked about the financial, especially the financial, to cover any of these stories. Let alone having just Deb Holland in the government, and and yet that still represents an underrepresentation of, uh, as we call it, unequal coverage. 
even when it comes to MMIW and more, the, the potency that you have as an independent journalist, I think it's going to take a, a long process, as, as we know, to not give into the culture of that Americana that says Native people don't exist because we're afraid of the jurisdictional barriers being, like you said, to be thrown into uh, some kind of uh, uh, detention system or not. or it's, it, And it's going back to the boarding school days when they would first start taking Native children away, that if you didn't comply, then the, the land would be taken away, more food would be taken away, all the privileges that the treaty was supposed to give us. Well, I think that that's what boarding school, the boarding school legacy represents is it's the clearest um, legacy that links, links it all to dispossession, right? Cultural genocide. And it was systematic and it was um, long and carried out. I mean, they even had, um, you know, uh, Senate hearings around it in 1914 because it got so bad. And that's usually that's what drove it to its collapse. But nobody knows this history. And when we start to look at modern day uh, cultural genocide of unpolicing of indigenous women going missing um, and and to be sure our men and our uh, two spirit relatives I mean that's just a really modern uh, version of that story because you know the the whole the whole uh, formula has rested on fewer Indians right if there's fewer Indians then those treaty obligations are less of a burden in the United States and we still get the land and I don't think that that's a mistake when we start to look at the justice system. And when um, I know natives, I've covered the justice system. When I know natives who are gone and sucked into the justice system, it's sad and it's scary because you almost don't see them even when they come out on the other side, because it's really hard to piece back your life again after um, you try to climb out of something like that. It's just, you know, it's just hard to be native. It's three times, four times hard to be native, period. <laughs> and I, I think that's across the board. And so um, I I think that when we start to look at things like, you know, what, what Gwen Eiffel said about this um, missing white women syndrome, and you start to do what Northwest University did, Northwestern University Law in 2016, they actually took that small statement of Gwen Eiffel's from 2004 and unpacked it and just looked, put the lens on the media. And um, they didn't explore indigenous peoples, but they did explore black Americans. And what they found uh, was that overwhelmingly the newsroom count underrepresented Black lives in in their analysis um, in terms of how they framed um, black individuals accused of minor crimes or even major crimes, um, a lack of reporting when they were innocent. Right. And um, it's I mean, the media in and of itself is a strata that we are not looking at in terms of reparations. And there needs to be real media reparations because it is that colonial structure that has often led to uh, destroying lives. And there needs to be some real uh, reconciliation for that. 
that term you just said, media reparations. We do need to be, I don't want to say compensated, but our voice needs to be heard more. And I think that's coming true with, with uh, you said Canada's Native people are more militant. But I think it's more that we are under, understanding and realizing our own originality that the reason why they had to come at us is because we were powerful and we're still in that state because we're connected in relationship with the land. And as we know, when the core is abusing the land is what Native peoples originally didn't do. And maybe we are now by giving in to corporations, but it's still there. The, the love of the land, the respect for the land, that relationship we have is a non-Western idea. But when it comes to the West, what do they do? They go after our mining, our children, um, the waters, the, the so-called sources that they call resources. And and I think that's where this whole idea is that who are we remaining true to as as Native people? That's right. That's right. Well, I, I've been actually thinking long and hard about um, restorative justice in, in the media. And in my view... You know, there's kind of a, a good formula that a lot of uh, my colleagues are talking about, my colleagues of color. And, you know, one of the components is that um, it takes a real atonement by um, the industry itself. And to get to that atonement, unfortunately, it means calling them out, but not calling them out in a way where there's shame involved, calling them out in a way of saying, look, this is what you guys did. It was really hurtful for this reason, that reason, and it led to X, Y, and Z. And there needs to be some acknowledgement of that. And if anything, apologize, right? And um, and and it's when you can see it, when you can visibly see how these structures have erased people, have harmed people um, by uh, by racist framing, right? Um, over not just once or twice, we're talking over a course of a century and a half <laughs> for as long as the press has been America. It's um, there's some real there's some real um, uh, there's just some real uh, repara- repairing that needs to happen. And I don't think that our industry is anywhere near that. They're hoping that they could slap the same old Band-Aid on it by hiring inclusivity editors and making, you know, these easy beats around race. And and that, I'm just sorry. Like, it's that's not going to help. That's just not going to, that's not going to do it. You have to address the real problem um, for what's been causing this virus, right? This, um, what's led to a lot of the disruption. And one of those real primary examples is the um, 19, was it 68? Was it 68? And yes, I think so. The 1968 Kerner Commission report, if you know anything about that report, it came out after um, the quote unquote riots in Detroit um, in the 1960s. And, um, you know, it was largely a report to look at uh, civil civil injustices towards uh, black Americans around that were centered around um, a lot of those violent um, um, uh, protests that were taking shape across American cities and. But one component in there, which journalists 
like me uh, love to hang latch on to, especially right now, is that there was a strong, strong treatise in there about what we're calling media reparations, how the media industry in and of itself, um, they, there was a whole study by this congressional commission to look at how, with a harm the actual harm that a white media structure was having on a, a people of color and how there needed to be real reform. And it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go. There were all of these outlined mandate, you know, mandates and uh, recommendations. And it, I think one of them led to what we now know as public broadcasting um, the public broadcasting system, which devoted money to, you know, your stations like NPR and PBS. And that was built in. What was baked into those agreements was that there needed to be represent true representations of those communities. But if you look at the numbers of NPR, if you look at those numbers, it is entirely um, stacked with white, white male leadership, reporters, storytellers, they're trying to work on it. But NPR's track record on diversity is like one of the worst in the industry. It's like one, they keep trying and they, but they're not trying. They're not really trying. And, um, and so I think that that Kerner Commission report, which is now a New York Times bestseller, by the way, it just got published. Jelani Cobb wrote the foreword. I highly recommend it of the New Yorker. Jelani Cobb of the New Yorker. I highly recommend it. Anyway, it's now a New York Times bestseller. And I think that it is more relevant today in 2021 than it was when it got published by the commission in 1968, simply because I think that we're in an era where there's a window to actually do something and our our industry needs to do something it's time it's overdue it, it's it's done it's over it's uh, yeah and the thank you Danny for your time here and it's always great to make my mind move here and the motion that your energy brings here one more question is I know the latest trend is acknowledgement of the land and what I hear is a, a reference to the past Acknowledge the people of the land that were here. They were here. So it's acknowledging, but that you're dead, basically. And and to me, there's this certain hidden microaggression in it. But it's also saying, when I ask a person, say, why did you acknowledge us? And say, well, that, what's what we do now? So I sign a respect to the Native people. And I said, but will that really change anything? Because nothing has changed since I've been hearing it. 10 years ago, what has changed? Well, I do. Land acknowledgements are performative um, at, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> at, their, at their most foundational level, right? I mean, I've, I've sat through some pretty cringeworthy ones um, just <laughs> very recently. Um, I think that when people ask me, how do we go beyond the land acknowledgement? For me, I actually look back to Canada. They have this really beautiful slogan um, that's been kind of slowly building, uh, centered around uh, the phrase, we are all treaty people. And when you unpack what it means to be treaty people, it goes back to the kin theory that I was talking about, um, that I wrote about in my newsletter, Indigenously, recently. And that is beyond familiar relations. It's all of us with the earth, 
right? But also those of um, settler society who have a role in how things are today. And I think that if people stop in their tracks and ask what treaty territory, first of all, first question, am I on treaty territory or am I on taken land? Because it's all indigenous land, right? But am I on treaty territory or am I on taken land? And if I'm on treaty territory, what are my obligations? And if I'm on taken land, ask that question too. What what are what is the next level for reparations? Treaty lands, you know, there's a participation of honoring what those treaties are to the fish, the the animals, the wildlife, the the rivers. Right? Um, you could take line three as a prime example right now of everyone who is invested in um, that Missouri River has a treaty obligation to protect that river. Right? That is we are all treaty people. And if people truly want to acknowledge the land, then acknowledge the treaties connected to those lands. And then if it's if it's the worst case scenario, acknowledge that they've been completely taken and consider ways for um, land restoration. That's what the land back movement uh, is exciting for me about. It's not about, you know, returning all the land to native peoples, but it is acknowledging that there was a lot of stolen land too. And that is where, um, you know, when we're talking about stewardship and the intersection of shared responsibility and colonization and the impacts of colonization, I mean, that's, that's where land acknowledgement is. That's where it lives for me anyway. That's a great thought and, and a way to really think about what we can do and maybe change our way of, of action, so to speak, within all the spectrums of how we live our lives daily as Native people. But Jenny, it's an honor, big honor to, to see you and hear you and, and that you're still oh. doing you're still doing that work. And it's a good thing that you're there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Tiokasan, likewise, it's just a treat to see you. I'm so glad you're still on the air. Um, I'm honored to be on your show. And um, yeah, if, sign up for the newsletter at indigenously.org. And um, it comes out every weekend. And you, we can we can stay in touch that way. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> see Take you. Care. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And that was our guest, Jenny Monet of Laguna Pueblo an investigative journalist, media critic, and founder of the weekly newsletter, Indigenously, Decolonizing Your News Feed. And you can actually go to indigenously.org to find out more about Jenny and follow her thoughts as she continues to travel the world, the lands, and among different peoples and report on what they're experiencing in their lives. Uh, this is First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghostorse, and we'll be right back with you.
is more from indigenously.org by Jenny Monet. Once you go there, she says, colonization everywhere happens by the exportation of indigenous lands and what lies beneath it. And so reporting on pipelines and dams or the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge becomes necessary to understanding the indigenous narrative behind these developments. In this way, it makes our story essential to every law and policy that dictates our society. Healthcare, housing, banking, education. It all circles back to the land, which for me is a metaphorical gauge for how we treat our most vulnerable people, often indigenous peoples. And perhaps Felix Cohen, who wrote the Handbook of Federal Indian Law, said it best. Quote, like the miner's canary, the Indian marks the shift from fresh air to poison gas in our political atmosphere and our treatment of Indians, even more than our treatment of other minorities, reflects the rise and fall of our democratic faith. Felix Cohen, 1907-1953. And that's Kotpiro. My name is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. It's been a pleasure. Every time I bring amazing guests of all walks of life from every culture and every continent for the last 29 years, and still continue to do this in the name of the earth. Above all, I really think that we have to get over the concept of humanity, which is really a Western thought, because who made us, who gave us humanity? Earth, animals, trees, air, water, the land gave us humanity. And so why aren't we including in our language, in our speech, rather than having to go to institutions to say these things. We should be going to the land to listen to the life out there so that way we don't have to go to institution and declare humanity. So it's a concept of the West because that's very anthropocentric to think humanity. So I'll go with that. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. It's hard to believe We don't wanna leave So
It's hard to believe. And-